This is the Tactical Leader Podcast, where we're on a journey of self-mastery and true leadership. I believe that in order to lead others, you must first be able to lead yourself. And in order to lead yourself, you have to first know yourself. If you want to learn the tactics to get to know yourself, to lead yourself, and to lead others, stay tuned to hear from industry experts as I unpack the tactics that they've used to build their business, build culture, and lead others. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Tactical Leader. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Amanda Rabideau, and we're going to talk about how she empowers entrepreneurs through the creation of Arch Collective. Before we begin, I want to remind you, this show is brought to you by Nightly Productions. If you're ready to discover, embrace, and share your voice through podcasting, head over to nightly.productions to find out how we can empower you to do just that and create the tactical content that delivers. Again, that's nightly.productions. Amanda, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Zach. So I'm super excited. We obviously are hitting off the uh, recording aspect of things. And I think this is going to be a great conversation, but I want to give the audience before we dive into that conversation, just a quick tidbit about you where you have this amazing background as a founder, CEO, fractional CMO, all at Arts Collective. But overall, you have 15 years of experience growing businesses using effective marketing strategy and scaling practices. Throughout your career, you've worked with large enterprises like Dell, Microsoft, CoreLogic, CloudStaff, New Relic, Orometrics, which was acquired by Dent Supply Serona in 2018. Yeah. Your devotion now is to empowering entrepreneurs through successful business that handles all marketing strategy and executions for B2B tech startups. You believe that operating with talented freelance marketers is a future of work, as well as Valuable advantage provided by fractional CMOs, allowing post-Series A startups to deploy new capital in the safest, most cost-efficient way. Overall, freelance marketers, designers, entrepreneurs, and female business leaders look to grow their companies through effective marketing and commercialization will find your experience knowledgeable, inspiring, and beneficial. You are overall exciting. And as a female leader, I am super stoked to bring you in onto the show. Besides that awesome bio that we're going to dissect a little bit, what's a fun fact that we might not know about you? So I believe in the importance of teaching children to kitchen dance. Doesn't matter what the music is, but I think that, and I'll give you why for a couple of reasons. One, which is nothing's worse than showing as an adult is showing up at a wedding or even in high school, like going to a dance and feeling uncomfortable getting on the dance floor. So I'm like, I want to make sure my kids aren't those kids and as adults. And then also it's a super fun and silly way for even as a parent to like have a good time and, you know, all that hard work I've been doing all day, shake it out, have a good time, get silly, and then, you know, get back to, to it the next day. Now, you already said shake it out, which obviously is the queen, Tay-Tay. We love some good shake it off. But I have to know, because you mentioned you have a three-year-old, is Baby Shark in the repertoire? So Baby Shark was so two years ago, Zach, for us. You know, <laughs> oh, like so we've really of, of we've moved on. There's a lot of... My daughter is actually into some of the like techno and dance. She's now digging that. And then my son, if I play a song from any of the three Cars movies, he actually even likes the non-word songs. Tokyo Takeout's his favorite. So we really like to diversify it in our household. I love it. Well, I'll stick with Baby Shark because I know the moves to It's a classic at this point. It's a classic. So it's a fair guess. So two years ago. (laughs) 
So obviously you have some kids, you have a great family. You mentioned you're heading off to a birthday party right after this, but I want to dive into your overall mindset as a fractional CMO. I understand the fractional COO world because I kind of operate in that. Mm-hmm. Can you just explain to the audience if they don't know what a fractional CMO is, what is that and what's the effectiveness of having one as part of the organization? Sure. So a fractional chief marketing officer or a fractional CMO is basically someone who comes in, and in my case, it's to startups, but these exist in larger organizations too. But it's someone that comes in and and works part-time for not only one organization as their CMO, but for multiple organizations at a time. And so I would say it's it's typically an interim role. You know, it's not a long-term position. It might be for a year or two years, or even just for a few months while they're looking to hire a a full-time CMO. But where I see it in particular very advantageous is for the exact audience I focus on, which are post-Series A funded B2B tech startups or post-Series A funded startups, but I focus on the B2B tech side. And I can explain why I think it's such a great solution for these companies So typically, when a company's received their Series A funding, it's their first round of um, like venture capital or private equity, some outside funding, and it tends to be a pretty significant amount as well. Well, like anything in life, with money comes some strings attached or obligations. And so the expectations are typically that they have to triple revenue in the next year. And Series A companies at that point probably don't have any marketers on their team and certainly not a strategic marketer. They have, at that point, when tripling revenue, they might have already exceeded their like low-hanging fruit or tapped into all of their networks. So they've got to demonstrate or figure out, how am I going to repeatedly acquire new customers? And then that kind of leads into the third part, which is when they're thinking of Series B or the next round of funding, How do I show those investors that I know how to continue to grow my business, continue to acquire those customers? So having someone who can be strategic to drive that business growth is really critical. And a lot of these startups can't afford a formalized C-level staff, right? I mean, it's really difficult to have a CMO, a COO, be the CEO. And these startups just don't necessarily have the capacity to do that. So bringing in somebody like you, where you have this strategy attached. And I know you talk about best practices, some of the best practices you offer up and you're already video ready, but I want to highlight this point is video is one of those things that you really highlight as being a very vital point of a marketing strategy. Can you hit a little bit on video and why it's so important in today's day and age? Yeah. And you know, the simplest is we are all so, so busy, right? And so There are, and I'm going to actually go geek out a little bit on some stats, so indulge me. But in 2021, there was 2x the venture capital funding going into startups as there was in 2020. And 2020 was also a record-breaking year. And so my answer is like, who the F is one working at these companies? But then also, which of these companies are good, worthwhile? Which one should I pay attention to or not? And so, you know, the proverbial like clutter in the marketplace is, is even more so. And so if you want to be able to quickly engage someone, get their attention, explain what you do, the best way to do that is through powerful messaging. And a great way to get that messaging out is through video. You know, people aren't going to read 
long blogs. I mean, there are some people, right? But a video is a really easy way to get someone's attention, engage them and quickly communicate the value that you offer. And what's interesting is I wanted to highlight that because I know a lot of people that are starting in business, they're already overcoming a lot of limiters and things that are keeping them from putting themselves out there in a different capacity. And a lot of the audience we have are transitioners, entrepreneurs that came from military and police, Mm -hmm. like my background or corporate into, but even a C-level executive at any one of these organizations might be quite afraid of like, that video. And like, you have to have the makeup, you have to have the presentation. I'm very big on aesthetics. The background needs to look decent and be in brand. There's a lot that even in podcasting, and we're just putting out voice for the most part, Mm -hmm. but there's a lot that goes into it. How do you help people get past these limitations where they feel like they might not be quote unquote camera ready? Well, one, there's a couple of things. The first is that I think that it's a misconception that one has to be quote unquote camera ready. So if you think to what is your brand, your personal brand, your company brand, that may or may not necessitate you needing needing to be camera ready. So if you're like, I'll use the stereotype of the San Francisco or Silicon Valley startup where the founder's in a hoodie and flip-flops and all that, you know, if that person showed up like, you know, hair done, makeup, maybe like earrings, the whole bit like me, it may seem inauthentic to that company. So coming on screen, not camera ready is probably better. On the flip side, if let's say you have someone running like a fashion startup and, you know, making and like they sell to like the beautiful people kind of thing. Well, then, you know, being camera ready will be really important. And then there's, of course, every other company and every other stage in between. So making sure that you are, you know, on brand for your company is more important than how you look. The second thing is, is that it really comes down to practice, right? The more any of us do anything, the better we're going to be at it, the easier it's going to be. I think it was Malcolm Gladwell who said like 10,000 hours to be a pro at something. Well, you're not going to get to 10,000 hours if you don't start with the first 30 seconds and the next 10 minutes and so on and, and build to that. So the best place is to just start, appreciate where you are in your journey and then go from there. The other thing I would say, I work with really awesome founders. So I like to be there the first time we're doing videos and I've been in their shoes. I've had to get in front of the camera for the first time. And so, you know, a little bit of an ego stroke never hurts in that process either. So if you've got someone to be there to be like, you're doing great or making sure that like your collar is not weirdly under your lapel and, you know, is there and having your back, that also helps too. And it's really funny because it's one of those that video can be so simple as like going live on Instagram or Facebook, just a selfie mode type thing. Right. And I remember way back, this will probably be episode well into the 300s, 320, 330 on the podcast. But I remember way back when I, before I started the podcast, there are several limiters that kept me from ever starting a podcast. And even today I'm not on video as much as I'm sure you would recommend, right? Where video really is that chief resource for a lot of entrepreneurs, but I've seen this like kind of shift where it's becoming a little bit more commonplace, becoming a little bit more saturated. When you go all the way back to like your first experience, what made you shift into, or maybe you've always been that way, but what gave you this concept of like content marketing? This is the way to grow organizations from like your very first catalyst position. 
going back to content, I distinctly remember a slide back in my like slide packet, because that's how long ago I was in school, that it said like content is king. So I don't know if there's ever a point where content didn't seem important, at least in my you know marketing education and experience. What I can tell you is that where I started to recognize the power of it is really when I started working at a digital marketing firm. And you know, in order for us to get people to want to learn or to like give us their information so that we could continue to market them. It's a little bit of like, I'll give you something if you give me something. And I mean, it it makes sense, right? Like, hey, I'll give you something interesting to read or watch or consume. Give me your name and give me your email. And then I can send you more stuff that you might like. And so it certainly makes sense. But it's really in that digital marketing world that I saw the impact of what great content could do for a business. And when you fast forward today's market, especially post-COVID, you saw, at least I saw the big shift. I'm sure you saw a big shift. A lot of people in COVID, LinkedIn, Facebook, all these places became really saturated with just content where people had more time to put out content and more time to spam more or less, right? All of a sudden you get a lot more DMs, you get a lot more messages and mails, what would you recommend to somebody if they want to like stand out in the crowd where you scroll like your Instagram page, you have a ton of videos of yourself out there that are obviously branded very well, but it's photos of you, branding of you, you're putting yourself out there. What is it that helps people stand out from a more saturated environment in this video and content marketing world? So I would say three things. And the first is you've got to have a solid story or a solid message. And so the brands, the businesses, the influencers, the creators, those that do a great job, they know their domain and they stick with it, right? And they have their story that they're telling, what they're out there talking about it. And so one, I think having a solid story. The second piece is consistency. So, you know, to break through, like, I always forget the exact number, but, you know, ever since Elon Musk bought Twitter, they've been talking a lot about how many tweets go out like every, you know, hour, day, whatever. And it's, it's millions, I believe. And so, you know, you're thinking, okay, I've got to fight with a million other messages. Well, if you're consistently, you know, getting your message out there and you say, okay, I'm going to post at these times or, you know, this, these days, this many posts, the consistency of that alone is helpful. And, and, you know, Zach, Think about your podcast and how you structured it with releasing three different pieces, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and that's your program. That's what you do. Your audience now expects that. And that consistency has helped you build your audience. So I think like having a strong story, sticking with your, having a strong message and sticking with it, and then like understanding your audience. So, you know, if you want to capture your audience's attention, you got to get into their mind. You have to understand, like, what are they probably, you know, like developing a persona? Like, what are they doing right now? Who are they? What do they like to eat? What do they listen to? Do they kitchen dance? You know, like, what, who is this person that I want to be consuming my content? And then you've got to, you know, try things out and experiment and, you know, really like you're having a conversation with them in person, right? Like you're not speaking to an empty chamber. You're trying to reach people and connect. So having their that person in mind, that would be the, the third thing. And you talk about kitchen dancing. And it's funny how I want to highlight this aspect, because especially with engagement interactions on social media, I do find that I when I put personal content out there, even something of the dog, I call my dog, I have a 15-year-old Husky. 
I call her my coworker and I call her the laziest coworker you possibly can have. Nice. Every day I post a photo and she's the most loyal coworker too, I bet. I don't know. She sleeps too much. I don't know if she's loyal <laughs> or not, right? Okay, okay. And, and it's one of those I'll post a photo, I'll post a story of her, and she's literally right behind me, like mean mugging me as she knows I'm talking about her. But it's funny, like those personal <laughs> things that are like day-to-day life, from kitchen dancing to the pup that is a terrible coworker. Those seem to get more engagement. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs are kind of scared to put their personal being into the business world. Is that like a gap that you bridge or you recommend bridging? How do you kind of see that dichotomy? Oh my gosh. So, you know, I think I mentioned I work with B2B tech startups. It's true. And I do focus on businesses that sell to businesses. But something that you know, I also say is those Bs, those businesses are made up of the Cs or those consumers, right? And so, you know, we are humans. We storytelling and that is a connection point is something that is the foundation of how we have built society over the, you know, thousands, hundreds, millions of years, however long we've all been in existence. And so if you have those moments where there's a human aspect to this person, to this business, it makes it so much easier to connect. And, you know, speaking of social media, and I appreciate your kind words about the Arch Collective account, but the likelihood of someone wanting to follow a business is less likely than someone wanting to follow a person. And this is the power of these creators and these influencers. I don't know if we're still using that term anymore, but like people want to connect because they're humans. And so you're getting to know this person and you're able to relate to them. And so I think there's incredible power in in showing some of those aspects of who you are outside of being a marketer. Like I'm a kitchen dancer, mom marketer, and you're, you know, former military businessman podcaster with a lovely dog who I bet is very loyal. And so this is what makes us human. And so you can't forget the human part of it, regardless of who you're marketing to. And yes, she is extraordinarily loyal. <laughs> it's funny. I walk around Atlanta and she does not leave my hip because she is that queen in my life. And I think that's something that makes it more personal. And you kind of hit on it with my background, police and SWAT, military, infantry, I deployed to special forces. Then all of a sudden I post like a sappy photo of the pup and people are like, oh, wait, he is actually a human being. And he's like a, a person. Even talking in that B2B world where people kind of forget that it is made up of the C's. It's made up of the individual. And that is what kind of sets you apart that people truly feel like people forget like the human aspect attached to the business is so vital because and you hit on it. People are going to buy from the individual. So by integrating like yourself into the Arch Collective Instagram feed, people are going to reach out and like, oh, I want to talk to Amanda because she did this, this and this. And I saw this piece, not I want to reach out to Arch Collective as much, right? It's kind of that co-branding of personal and business brand. And Zach, you know what? And we can mark this as the inspiration point. I think we need to create this category of B to H marketing. Forget the B to B, forget the B to C. It's like B to H or maybe it's C to H too, right? I don't know, however you want to put it, but like we're humans. And, you know, one of the things that, and I, you know, I love talking about messaging. I'm a product marketer by trade, but you know, this concept of storytelling as well is so important. And I mentioned like, this is how history has been passed down, but it's also in going back to your question about breaking through the clutter, you know, I would say like, do you right now, could you tell me an abridged version of the founding story of how Steve Jobs started Apple? 
he's really smart in his like garage or something, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, he is very smart, right? But like this idea, he's (laughs) the quintessential or the person who like started the tech company in a garage in Northern California, Cupertino. And so it's like, we all know this story. It's like, do you know what date that was? Do you know how old he was? I mean, some people might, but it's like, we remember the story about things. It's stickier. Like I said, how we pass things along. And so stories have such a powerful component. And so if you can tell that story, like, yes, I'm all of these people, but I'm also this human who has a dog and like, you know, takes them to brunch on Saturdays when I read the paper and drink my coffee. Like, it's like you start to build this and it's like, oh, I like Zach because yes, he has all of these qualifications, but they're probably remembering, oh yeah, he's the guy with the dog, right? And it's funny. I am a self-proclaimed brunch bro and you kind of like nailed it. It's actually on Sundays. I will take her on a date every Sunday. Brunch is for Sundays. I I really feel like, yeah, no, but I I jest about it. But the reality of it is, is as I integrated that more into the branding, I, I really had a big shift about a year ago. And even the podcast where it was really like that personal brand started coming to the forefront. I was transitioning off of active duty, but I really was starting to come into that forefront of like, come in that limelight is Zach Knight, who are you? Not just like, all right, here's all the company stuff. And I think that's really important. I know you do a lot of B2B. Can you talk about how important that is in the corporate side as well, where it's in the business realm, even for the employee in the business? Like, is it still important to like garner this personal brand to like set yourself apart when you're looking for promotion and advancement? I mean, I think that a personal brand, it's been important, but it's it's now so important because you know, if you're making a hire, what's the first thing you're going to do? You're going to Google that person and you're probably going to see a social media come up and you're going to learn about who this person is through what they've done. You know, if it's available to look at, you know, who that person is at work, what they're doing, of course, that all goes into your personal brand. So from a hiring and, and getting promoted and all of that, you absolutely need to think about your digital footprint and how it, you know, is going to affect your career. But then, you know, thinking on the leadership side, you know, Gen Z and millennials more than ever care about mission-driven companies. And so if you have a leader in place who isn't supporting things that they're aligned to, they're going to have a very hard time recruiting people to come into your organization. And I think, you know, one example that that comes to mind of where this really went wrong is Better.com. They were in the news at the end of last year, beginning of this year. And it's like the CEO built an incredible product, right? And so he did amazing work, but then he totally shit the bed, excuse the language, on how he handled, you know, letting the team go. And now he's out of a position, the better.com has a stain. And then you have all of these people out there who have, you know, a less than positive experience around better. And it's really unfortunate because the text there, the user experience, he had it all and he didn't do a good job in that communicating and telling the story and being that leader. And so, you know, people are looking at at what leaders are doing more closely than ever. So making sure you have a good rating on your personal brand is is so important. And I want to highlight, I mean, you're hitting the nail on the head just from the experience I've seen, but I want to highlight as a female, I feel like it's even more difficult at times. And I do have a lot of female clients that come to me and talk about how they're presenting themselves in the corporate world, where the way you dress, the way you look, the way you speak, the tone you have is so much more of an issue or problematic as for a female, where as a female leader, when you want to be assertive, 
you know, you get labeled something different than assertive and empowered and effective. What would you say to that female leader that's out there that's wanting to assert herself and create this personal brand in your own experience? Have you seen a, a tip or trick that you can give to her that would be something that would help her succeed and get this across in an effective way? Well, first, I want to say thank you for acknowledging that there is this like different set of expectations for women than men. And it is, it's a minefield. And, you know, I would say I'm not going to give advice to women. I'm going to give advice to men on this, which is when you're in a conversation or you're in a meeting, let's say, or you're having a conversation with a woman and you start to think any of these negative thoughts, like why is she being such a bitch or like what's her problem or all that, you know, take a second and imagine that this is Tom you're talking to or, you know, Bill, it's not Betty or Sandy or whoever, you know, it's not a female, it's a male. And, and like reframe that because I think there's certainly like, you know, women, you know, judging women, but I think it's also because there's a lot more men in senior leadership positions, you know, women are doing our damnedest to like break through the glass ceiling, but it's still mostly men in those leadership positions. So it's really up to them more than women. Like we don't want to change our behavior anymore. Men need to start reframing and they need to start looking at the situation differently. And I think if we get more men in leadership doing that, we're going to see more of an impact than if women just are the only ones fighting the good fight. Yeah, I absolutely respect that reframing. And you're 100% right where it's the male mindset, especially in leadership roles. I speak from that military law enforcement alpha male mentality that we it could be very toxic in the leadership position. You see it. And as a female, obviously, I can empathize as best as I can, but I'm never going to experience that, which is why I love calling attention to it when I see a very empowered female in a leadership role. And as a CMO, I mean, you're in a leadership role in a ton of different organizations. So I love highlighting that aspect where it really is a reframing for men to recognize like an empowered female. What I found, and it's really funny, not funny necessarily in the literal sense, but it's funny to me how when a female gets involved, the level of creativity, the level of connection in an organization, it changes. And that's something that I recognized in the military when we could get a little bit different perspective, because in the military, you have a bunch of dudes that are thinking the exact same way. And there's very little diversion away from that linear line of thinking. So bringing in a female like yourself can really be very powerful when you start creating a different type of perspective that I think you would bring to an organization as a whole, especially in a creative way. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I certainly didn't expect to get into some of this, but you know, a lot of the, the problems and the way that the world is structured is because you have a small subset of people, typically men who've been building that world. And, you know, one of the examples that's come up is like test or car crash tests are done on men, right? So like everything that's built isn't necessarily for a woman. And that's just one small thing. You know, women are one aspect of diversifying, but like if you bring in more perspectives and a, a more diverse group, I think that is exactly when the creative magic happens because you know, I've got my, you know, like I grew up in Michigan. So I've got my Midwestern, you know, white female perspective. And I know you're in Atlanta now. I don't know where you're originally from, but like, you've got your Atlanta white male perspective. And so, yeah, there's like maybe some geographic and obviously we're, you know, male, female, different perspectives. But what if we brought in other ethnicities? We brought in other geo, you know, locations, educated, non-educated, more military people, you know, some people that don't like the military, right? Like, There's so many ways to diversify. And so 
it's like, you know, opening up the table and making sure that there's chairs for lots of people is so important. And, and one of the things that at Arch Collective that I love to do, and, and specifically for females, is that when I'm working with freelancers, that when they tell me, hey, look, this is what I charge, I love being able to pay them what they ask for. Because when women are asking for raises and more money, you know, we have like, a lot of baggage that we've had to carry. And maybe I'm just speaking to my generation, but you know, where we've been told no, or we've continually been paid less. So if you've got someone out there who's asking for more and asking for money, I'm like, good for you, girl. You know, I want to be able to give them what they're asking for because I know there's a lot of history that went into them having the courage to ask for it. I love everything you just said. And it's definitely a diversion away from marketing to an extent. When we think about leadership in the overarching realm, I think this is like a conversation that needs to be had that people aren't having, right? They don't want to have these conversations about the diversification or a lot of leaders feel threatened by a female. I mean, I could easily see in the military, especially that alpha mindset is all of a sudden, oh, I can't let a female quote unquote beat me, right? Or outmaneuver me or outpromote me. And I see a shift happening or especially needing to happen more. And it turns back into where we have this focus of leadership and the tactics that companies should be taking because then it becomes a marketing point, right? Where, hey, this is how we're diversifying our or our organization as a whole to be able to reach different audiences, to be able to reach different people, to be able to relate. Because at the end of the day, this is what we were talking about to begin with, with the branding and the personal branding, relatability is such an important part in marketing that if you're not diversifying and getting different perspectives, you're kind of just out in left field, only talking to yourself, right? And, you know, if as a business person and, you know, it comes back to economics 99% of the time, right? So if you want to grow your business, you probably need to acquire customers or clientele or whoever that are diverse from who you already have, whatever your audience is. And so it's like, it kind of stunts your growth if you're not able to, you know, open up the doors. And there's always an, ex- like, not an excuse, but a reason, like, there's businesses that are niche, like, you know, my grandmother was in a, a care facility for older people. Well, like they don't need to diversify to, you know, young people, but like there are certainly cases where it makes sense that like the wider the net or the more open you are, then the better. Now, what's interesting though, and so we're going to have, this might be a good marketing debate that we can have. One of the things I talk about with startup founders, especially is the importance of being very clear on their target audience. And I say that like, when I talk to these founders, they have FOMO for revenue or revenue FOMO, which is like, oh, you want to give me money? Great. I'll take you as a client and you and you. And all of a sudden you're like, okay, you've got 10 clients and there's nothing consistent about all 10 of them. Like, how the heck are you going to scale this business? And certainly, who am I supposed to be marketing, right? And so at a certain point, especially when you're beginning, you know, it's much more effective to be very niche focused, Right. And so to say, I want to focus on this one audience, I'm going to learn about them as much as I can about them. I'm going to get into that mindset, like I talked about the buyer persona, and then you can always build from there. Now, bringing in diverse people to help you grow that business is is helpful. But like, you know, that's the one thing I would say, and, and I'd love to hear your thoughts, but like at the beginning, focus and targeting on like one, maybe two audiences is more important than if you're a more mature business and you've expanded to industries and geographies and whatnot. I 100% agree with that. And the unfortunate part is it's really difficult for a lot of people to find that, right? And it's something that 
as I've grown in business and I own six businesses outside of just like sitting here podcasting and each one has a different target market, but it's one of those that I found is really difficult to pinpoint at times. And sitting there by myself thinking by persona, it's, you know, throwing a dart against the wall sometimes where you're like, without the input of somebody like yourself, it's like, all right, I think I'm going to sell to this person. You throw the dart and you hope it hits. Right. And I think that's where a lot of people, I'd push it back to you about resources to help make that an easier conceptualization and easier to put it actually into a process where a lot of people don't know how to make that decision of like, this is who we're going to sell to. This is who our ideal client is. I know you have a course out there that's all about crushing your messaging and taking your brand in the next level. Are there other resources you recommend that help people kind of get that ideal client out there and really start speaking their voice to that individual? Well, and, you know, speaking of the course, one of the steps in the 10-day process is getting really clear on your target audience and developing that persona. And I talk through and I have a template, like, think about it this way, fill out these things. These are the details. Because as you start to think through, okay, like, if let's say it's a it's a business target, like you sell to other businesses. Well, like, what's the industry I'm selling to? What are the titles? Is there a geography? Like, what's the level of experience? You know, there are some things that you can start to define and jot down that will begin to paint a clearer picture of that. And then as you then go out and test your messaging that you create, you can be like, oh, did like do different A-B tests. Does this work with the audience? Oh, wow. When I have a subject line that's funny... I get 90% open rates when my subject line is more informative. I only get like 15% open rates. So like, let's take this more funny tone of voice. And so, you know, trying to understand as much as of that audience as you can, creating, you know, uh, an intelligent hypothesis and then testing that hypothesis. If it was, you know, there is an art and a science, right? But like, it's not easy if it was, and every company would be a trillion dollar company, but they're not. So it's like, you got to, you know, be patient and figure it out because, you know, sometimes you don't get it on the first try. In fact, most of the time, you're not going to get it on the first try. Yeah. And that's definitely an issue I've had over the years where it turned into once you kind of develop a customer base and you start, people start knowing you. It's almost how I figured it out is like people started getting to know me and they're like, oh, I like these aspects of what you do. And that's where I came up with the conceptualization of like a fractional COO. The way my mind works, I'm like the tidbits that I don't even think about are the things like, oh, I didn't understand these fractional tactical steps to accomplish the big vision. And I started listening more. It's like, okay, cool. That's how I can start developing an audience a little bit more. And it, it can be really difficult. It's something that I've struggled with over the years where I think bringing a resource like you in can really help push that in the right direction. And I think a, a fractional CMO, but also the Arch Collective, what y'all do as a whole really helps do that in a way that makes sense for a lot of people to help get that clarity because that clarity is so key. Well, Zach, you you mentioned something and I don't want to gloss over it because I think it's so important. You use the word listen. And so if you want to grow, if you want to understand, listening is so, so, so important too. So let's say I'm starting a company on selling glasses, right? And I don't know anything about glasses, but I feel like this could be a cool business. So I'm going to do it. Well, I've never sold it. I don't have any customers. I can't talk to them. Well, maybe I could sell these to restaurants. 
go reach out, stop at restaurants and be like, Hey, can I take five minutes of your time and ask you five questions? And then you ask the questions and you listen to what they're saying. And if you start listening to the people that might be a good fit, you start to understand, oh, they're not. Or you see, wow. Or you start to hear, wow, like I keep hearing this term or I keep hearing them say this is a problem or a frustration. And so it's that listening and having those conversations that's going to be so helpful in guiding your messaging, guiding the direction of your business, guiding you on where you should be focusing on building out or acquiring more customers. So I love that you mentioned listening because I listening with intent is super, super important. It's something that I incorporate into my marketing all the time. Yeah, I appreciate you highlighting that piece because it's something, again, I, I don't even think about it, but I learned that the hard way. You know, I'm like, I'm going this direction. And then I wasn't listening. And then as soon as I did start listening, all of a sudden, successes start hitting. And Amanda, I want to know, you know, you have the Arts Collective, you're putting out a ton of content, you're doing a lot of great things with organizations you're working with. Overall, what's the legacy you're wanting to leave on the world with all the amazing things you're doing? There's two different aspects of a legacy. And one is, and, and this kind of goes back to why I even started Arch Collective, but when I was thinking about starting a company and leaving my corporate job, you know, part of the motivation was I didn't really love the work that I did. And I was expecting Hugo, who's now turning, you know, three today. And I was like, why do I leave my kids or about to leave two kids, you know, but I certainly left my daughter to go to a job that isn't inspiring or motivating, or I feel like I'm really making an impact. And so for me doing this, it's like, I want to set the legacy of, you know, hey, kids, whatever your dreams are, whatever it is that you enjoy doing, like life is short. So like go after it and pursue that. The second piece is that I grew up in a family of entrepreneurs. And so like my, both of my grandfathers, they had businesses and one grandfather had multiple businesses, kind of like you, I guess, like a bar and a bump shop and like different things and, you know, always real estate and all these different things. And so, you know, there's just something about being around entrepreneurial minded people that really excites me. If I wasn't doing this and I met you and I'm like, oh, you have a business. Like, how are you growing it? What are you doing? Like, these are things that I like, as people say, like, what would you do if you weren't getting paid to do it? And I really love this. So, you know, to me, it's like working and building a legacy of helping entrepreneurs grow their business and enjoy that process because building a business is fun would be one part. And then setting a great example for my kids is the other piece. I love that. And obviously with the kitchen dancing, you're doing a great job <laughs> starting that overall. I love how that came full circle to the children. There we go. Yeah. Amanda, I want to give the audience an opportunity before we head off. Obviously, you're coming back for Tactical Fridays. We can get a little bit more granular with this stuff. But until we get into the tactics, what's the best way for people to reach out to you, learn about the course, learn about you, see your content? What are all your handles, your website? Give us all the details. Yes. Well, my website is arch-collected.com. And on there, you can learn about my course, about how I work with clients. You can read a lot of the content. And then, of course, you can find me on Instagram at Arch Collective Marketing. And then you can find me on LinkedIn through me, through my company, either way. But you know, like I said, I truly love meeting entrepreneurs, people who are going out there and trying to build businesses. So please don't hesitate to reach out. Even if you, know, you don't necessarily need me as your marketer, it's always great to connect with entrepreneurs. I love it. Amanda, you are amazing. I encourage everybody to reach out 
Definitely check out the stuff that she's doing, connect with Amanda, and of course, come back this Friday for her tactics about how we can optimize our marketing. Amanda, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Zach. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Tactical Leader Podcast. If this episode helped you along your journey of self-mastery and has inspired you to do more, I challenge you to head over to myvoicechallenge.com so you can find out how you can discover your voice, claim your independence, and build that thriving business that you've always wanted. Again, that's myvoicechallenge.com.